Jesus. Amen. Well, I invite you to join me in your Bible. We'll be in Psalm 145 this morning. And uh, we're coming into the second week of November, and uh, we're, we're looking at some psalms of praise as we try to prime the pump coming into Thanksgiving. Think about what, what is it that we should be thankful for? What is it that we should be praising God for? And looking at a number of psalms that help us do just that. Have you ever been at a loss for words? Now, there are some of us who uh, we will keep flapping our jaws and saying things even if we don't have the right words in the moment. I'm sometimes guilty of that. Uh, there are others, though, and there's situations where all of us will find ourselves where we just don't know what to say. Just don't know what to say where you're just like, I don't have the right words, and anything I say in the moment will just be inadequate. Has anybody ever felt that before? We're just like, man, I, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to say right now, and I need to stop talking, and or I'm supposed to be saying something, but I'm not sure quite exactly what that, that should be. Maybe you're faced with deep tragedy, and you just don't know what to say in the face of immense suffering. That's okay. It's okay to just be there when, when people are hurting, and not have any words of wisdom that are going to make it all better because nothing we can say will make it better. Other times you're faced with just immense beauty and grandeur. Like, hey, you go to the Grand Canyon, really anything you say is going to be inadequate. Like, wow, that's a big hole in the ground. Like, yeah, no duh, right? Like, there, there's nothing that, that we're going to say that's going to be able to capture just sort of the grandeur of what we're standing before. And I think if we're honest, when it comes to, to praising and to thanking God, you know, we come around Thanksgiving, we'll go around the table before we eat, and what are you thankful for? There's so many things we could be thankful for, uh, and so many things that do come readily to mind. But if we're honest, after listing about seven or eight things, you know, we're thankful for our families, and praise God for the gift of family. What, what a kindness from God. We thank God for our, our freedom living in the greatest nation in human history. We thank God for our homes. Here in the South, we thank God for air conditioning. Uh, life would be, would be pretty miserable without, uh, without air conditioning. You know, we, we thank God for all of these, these things that we can readily look around and see, us, see around us. What often happens is we then think, okay, I just took, it took me 28 seconds, and I can't really think of much else to thank and praise God for. Or maybe you're sort of doing your devotions, you're like, man, I'm really going to try to put into practice what we've been learning on Sunday and spend more time thanking God and praising Him. And, and after about two and a half minutes, you're sort of like, okay, now what? Awkward silence. What I want to help us with today from Psalm 145 is to, to give you some thoughts, some ideas. You could even just take Psalm 145 and say, I'm going to turn this this week into my prayer of praise to God to where I can get past the sort of awkward silence of I've sort of said everything that's come to mind and I don't have much else to say. One of the reasons we have the book of Psalms is to help us do just that. It's to help us pray. It's to help us worship. The book of Psalms, I'll just remind you, it's really a hymn book, right? It, it, we've got hymn books here in the pews that, that they give us the songs that we can sing together. It was a hymn book for the, the nation of Israel when they gathered together before God. And it gave them words that they could utter together and prayers that they could pray. And throughout history, the book of Psalms has been a place where God's people have grabbed onto and say, okay, when I don't know what to say, here are words that can maybe express the deep pain and suffering that I'm in. Or when it comes time to praise, to thank God, to be like, I know God is way bigger than what I can, can imagine. 
what if God gave us an inspired template to show us how to praise? That's what Psalm 145 is. Psalm 145 gives us sort of a roadmap in our personal journey of praise, where you're like, I want to grow in being able to praise God better and get beyond sort of the three or four things that I see around me to really focus on God. Psalm 145 is a great place to go. It's an outline, if you will, for our praise to where you can sort of take the outline of the picture and fill it in with the color of the personal details of your life. Or it can be a kindling for the fire of of our devotion, or or if you want to change the metaphor a little bit, a a can of gasoline to throw on the fire to just poof, bring the the fire of our worship, of our devotion into full flame, fuel for the engine. It's a a chapter, it's a, a psalm rather, that calls us to praise God for simply being God. Praise him because he's God, because of who he is. And here we have 21 verses that lead us and show us how to, to praise God, that, to passionately expressing our praise. Now think about passion. You occasionally run into people who are passionate about different things. And here's what I found out about people who are passionate about different stuff. You don't have to sort of like get them to talk about the thing they're passionate about. Like the person who's a big Alabama football fan they usually let you know about it right away, and they're wearing stuff, and there's flags, and we beat you and beat the other team, and all of this other thing. And they, they can tell you about yards and touchdowns and statistics that I don't even know what the numbers mean. Passionate about it. Or maybe someone who's, who's passionate about food. They can tell you about the best restaurants and their favorite cuts of meat and how things taste without sort of having to, to crank it out. Well, those who are passionate about God, which should be us as Christians, we're to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, should readily be able to praise and talk about God. This is the final psalm. If you look at the heading here, it's David's psalm of praise. This is the last psalm in the Psalter that is ascribed to King David. He wrote many, many of them. It's the last one that we have a title that says it's for him, and it says it's a psalm of praise. The other interesting thing about this, and it doesn't come through in English, is this is an acrostic psalm. So each verse begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Think of it this way as you're going from A to Z, thinking of something for the letter A to praise God for, and the letter B, something to praise God for. This is going through all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, except for for one in about the middle of the psalm, giving a, 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 a different line of poetry to praise God, praising God A to Z, or if you're in Hebrew, Aleph to Tav, missing just one letter. So let's go ahead and start diving into this. What do we praise God for? What are the things that we should praise God for as his people? The things that you could take home today and be like, you know what, I'm just going to sit down. I'm going to thank God using this as my roadmap, as my, as my outline. Well, number one, we should praise God for his greatness. Listen to these first few verses. I will extol thee, my God, O King, and I will bless thy name forever and ever. Every day will I bless thee, and I will praise thy name forever and ever. Great is the Lord. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise thy works to another, and shall declare thy mighty acts. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty and of thy wondrous works, and men shall speak of the might of thy terrible acts, and I will declare thy greatness. There it is again. They shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness, and shall sing of thy righteousness. David begins by saying, let's praise God for his greatness, his immensity. The first couple of verses, he's addressing God as the king. Now, here's what you know about David. David's the king. Yet David's recognizing, 
I'm not the ultimate king. There is a king who is over even me. The rest of the psalm, the attributes that are being praised of God are saying, God's the perfect king, and here, by the way, is what a perfect king looks like. A perfect, uh, the great king uh, is, is God. He's the true and eternal ruler of the universe. And by the way, every human ruler should remember that. The most dangerous thing you can have in any ruler is a ruler who thinks that he's, he's ultimate. Now, David's resolution, do you notice the I wills? I will extol thee. I will bless thy name. Every day will I bless thee. I will praise thy name forever and ever. This is David saying, personally, no matter how I feel, every day I'm going to take time to praise God. Here's what we do. We wait until the start of Thanksgiving, and we're like, oh, yeah, it's good food today, and I'm with family, and I'm feeling like you know, Christmas trees are going up. I'm going to thank God. David's saying, no, every day I'm going to praise God. You know anything about the life of David? His, his life was not smooth sailing. There were plenty of days where he would probably not feel like praising God. You see, praising God is a determination. It is a resolution. It is a choice. Say, God is God, and he is glorious, even if my day is not really that glorious. Every day, I'll I'll praise him. And notice that every day, forever and ever, because God endures forever, his praise will go on forever. You know what we'll be doing for all eternity? We'll be praising and delighting in God around his throne. Just encourage you, uh, as you take... Hopefully every day you have some time where you open the Bible, you read the Bible. You know what the Bible is about? It's about God. And so every day you read the Bible, you should see something about God that you could turn around and then praise him for. It's that simple. We don't have to make this complicated. Read the Bible and like, what does this tell me today about what my God is like? Let me stop and just recount that to him and talk to him about that and lift him up for that. Now, verse 3, David is just piling up sort of all the different Hebrew words he can come up with. To, to, to make the point that God is immensely great. Look at verse 3. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. He doesn't tell us all the ways that God is great. Why? Because God's, the, God's greatness, by definition here, is something you can't actually search out. You can't actually make a complete list to say, God's great in these ways and no more. You can think of him being great in his mercy because he forgives the likes of you and me. He's great in his power, speaking the world, the universe, into existence. He's great in his love. The love that he has for you and me is from everlasting to everlasting, and it will never be extinguished. He is great in his duration, and he is infinitely eternal. Like He he has no beginning, and he has no end. He's great in his immutability that our God never changes, which you're like, I know that, but we can't comprehend that because everything around us changes. Everything around us decays. Every life has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And every story has a beginning, and a middle, and an end. Our God is the God who was and is and is to come and will never change in any way whatsoever. He fills all time. He's great in his wisdom. Designing the, the, the whole world, designing the plan of redemption in all of its complexity and beauty. His plans cannot be fully fathomed. His love cannot be measured. His infinitude cannot be comprehended. One commentator said this, when humans utter words of praise for God, it is as though they are drawing a sunset with only a pencil. It's a great image. It's like us trying to describe rich colors in nothing but black and white. Our praise, as verse 3 says, should correspond with the greatness of God. 
okay, well, how do we sort of get ourselves to praise God? It's not by turning all the lights out and amping up the music and getting everybody sort of worked up into a frenzy. The way that we praise God is we say, here's God and his glory and his majesty, and let's behold him and consider him and fall down on our faces and worship him. That's worship. And that, by the way, is our ultimate purpose. Our ultimate purpose. That's the main reason why this church exists, is to, to bring glory and honor to God. This is not ultimately about how can we make our lives sort of run a little bit better. This is about how can we fulfill the purpose for which we were made, which is to be worshipers. Verses 4, 5, and 6 talk about the things that he's done, really down into verse 7. Notice the different words we have for things that God does. One generation shall praise thy works, they shall declare thy mighty acts. Verse 5, uh, they will describe your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of thy terrible acts. I'll declare thy greatness. They'll abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness and sing of thy righteousness. There's an emphasis here on what God has done. There's four different words here. The first one uh, in verse 4 has to do with what God has made. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. We can look at God's creation, the things that he has accomplished, verse 4. And praise him for that. I like to go for walks in the neighborhood, and so many days I'm going through, and it just, you notice things that you see every day, but you're like, well, hang on a second. Like, God made that pine cone. That's pretty amazing that he came up with that. Um, the next word here talks about God's strength. Okay, we come down here into uh, the end of verse 4. They shall declare thy mighty acts. The things that God has done that demonstrate that he's a really, really powerful God. You think about Israel's history, God splitting the Red Sea and bringing manna from heaven. Verse 5 has the, the, uh, the honor of thy majesty, thy wondrous works. This word here refers to the, the things that God does that result in us going, wow, wow. Not just, oh yeah, God does that kind of thing, but the things you step back and you're like, did God just do what I saw him do? Did he just answer prayer the way that I just prayed in, the, the, in a way that I can't explain? It's used often to talk about what God did in the Exodus. And then we get what, what's translated in verse 6 as terrible acts. We often think, oh, that's terrible, that's horrible. Okay, the idea here are, are things that uh, bring about a healthy kind of fear. Uh, the word awesome, in its truest sense, that which brings a sense of awe, really kind of captures the idea. God's creation, God's works of redemption, the ten plagues, the Red Sea, the manna in the wilderness, God opening the Jordan River, defeating Jericho, driving out the Canaanites, sending Jesus to die on the cross for your sins and mine, and Jesus walking out of a grave after being in it for three days. Like, I don't know anybody who's done that. We don't see that happening. That's, that's why people are like, deny the, deny the resurrection because of all the people who have ever died in history, save for the ones that God raised from the dead. Like, people don't rise from the dead. That is a display of the awesome power of God to bring about your salvation and mine. But there's an emphasis here. One generation shall praise thy works to another. They shall declare your mighty acts. I'll speak of them. Verse 6 they shall speak of the might of your, your awesome deeds. I will declare your greatness. Abundantly utter the memory. There's all these words that are describing the role we have in extolling them and saying something about them. That's what praise is, is looking at here's who God is, here's what he's done, and let me talk about it. Now, this is interesting. 
He's saying one generation shall pray, shall declare this to the next generation. This was God's plan for keeping faith alive. Deuteronomy 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You will love the Lord your God with all your being. And these things which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently to your children. And talk about them when you rise up, when you sit down. God has, God has commissioned and called parents to ensure that their children grow up knowing who the one true God is. I was in a discussion with a group of pastors of a month or so ago, and we were talking about, like, how can we help help this next generation come up to sort of be guarded against the, you know, the dangers of deconstruction and rejecting the faith? And there were a lot of good ideas thrown around, but one idea that never came up was, it's not actually the church's job. It is the family's job to be making sure that the next generation is equipped to know the Word of God. Now, the church is there to help, and we have children's ministries to come alongside. But mom and dad, God has called you to teach your children the Bible. God has called you to teach your children to know God and to love God. You see your kids every day. Okay, we see y'all once a week. One generation praising them, praising him to the next. So read the Bible with your kids. Teach, your, teach them to pray. Tell them over and over and over again the story of Scripture so they know how the story of Scripture unfolds. It's not just, well, we read through the Bible one time as a family. They should be good to go, and they know two or three Bible stories. No, know the story and the shape of the Bible. Let your kids see you in church lifting your voice up in praise to God. Let your kids see you with your Bible open and know that you are a person who prays. Celebrate answers to prayer. Now, this intergenerational thing should also be happening in church. Sunday school teachers teaching the next generation of kids God's word. This is not just only the family can do it, but the family primarily is called to do it. But the church also has a role here in teaching the next generation. In Awana on Sunday nights where kids are memorizing verses and and sort of getting them into their hearts. It should be happening in the, the foyer after church is, hey, those of you who've been Christians for a while are grabbing those who are, are new believers or, or younger in their marriage or in their walk with Jesus being like, hey, let me, just, let me just encourage you. Let me just speak into your life. How are the devotions going? How is the marriage going? The Bible envisions the church to be a family where there is intergenerational, the older teaching the younger. Not to just have wisdom that you have gleaned over your life and then keeping it to yourself, but speaking that into the lives of the next generation. Now here's the point here, these opening verses. God is great. He's the great king, he's the great God, and therefore he should be greatly praised by his people. We should celebrate what he has done and celebrate who he is. And yes, that starts on a Sunday morning when we sing hymns together as we've done today and hear the word. But this should be a way of life. I'll remind you, every day I will bless you. Tozer said something like this. He said, if you're not praising God throughout the week, you're not worshiping God throughout the week, you're probably not worshiping him on Sunday either. Hey, worship is not just showing up. Worship is having a heart that is in awe of who God is. So we praise God for his greatness. And we come on to this next section of the psalm, and we're called now to praise God for his goodness. Verse 7, they shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness. This renown of God's goodness and sing of thy righteousness, the Lord is gracious. And full of compassion, slow to anger, and of great mercy, the Lord is, here it is again, good to all. 
and his tender mercies are over all his works. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. Praise God for his, his goodness. Now, you know, verses 3 to 6, they, they, they talk about God being great. And we expect the king to be great and to have power and to have authority. But this king that we're talking about is not only great, but he's also good. You can look at many characters through history. There's some who were good, but they were weak. And there's others who were really powerful, but they weren't good. Here we have a God, we have a king in heaven who is both perfectly and infinitely powerful and perfectly and infinitely benevolent. That is awesome. God, the true king, is not merely mighty. He is also merciful. We sing, merciful and mighty. Both of those together are true of our God. In a way, we never see them true perfectly in any human being. You know, sometimes we, we're confronted with bad authority. Sometimes bad authority can be a great mirror to remind us God is not like that. That there is a perfect template of a perfect benevolent authority in this God. You see, his greatness might extract our trembling respect, but it is his goodness that wins our joyful love. Now, I love the language of verse 7, translated, they shall abundantly utter. Uh, the Hebrew word here is the idea to, to flow, to spring, to bubble up. It's like you turn the hose on and water comes out the other end. We might even say that gush. People who are just so overcome with the greatness of God, they just gush about how great God is. Just remind you, only springs with water in them bubble up. Only pipes with water have water coming out the other end. And only hearts with affection for God bubble up with praise to God. In other words, you can't pass on to your kids what you don't have yourself. You're not going to convince others to follow where you yourself have not traveled. So we see here in verse 7 God's moral goodness, his goodness and his righteousness put together. His goodness, he always does what is right. He's the definition of what is right. If God does it, it is right and it is true, and you and I have no business questioning or doubting it. Now verse 8, though, comes to the very heart of this. The Lord is gracious, full of compassion, slow to anger, of great mercy. David here is quoting from the book of Exodus. When Moses, he stands on Mount Sinai, after the, the golden calf incident, he says, God, show me your glory. God says, okay, I'll let you see it in the, from the cleft of the rock. I'll give you a partial vision. And God passes his glory before Moses. He says, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, slow to anger. David is grabbing onto what God has already revealed about himself and restating it. We get a few overlapping terms that paint this beautiful portrait of God. The first one here that we, we have in verse 8 is gracious. He's a God who helps us willingly and eagerly and freely. He forgives our sin. We get the word full of compassion. He feels pity for our suffering. Even our suffering that's brought about by our own stupidity. And God's not like, well, that serves you right. No, no, no. Even when we are in this place where we're hurting because of the lousy decisions we make as sinners, God is moved with compassion towards us. And sends Jesus to die for us. You see, our sin rightly calls out God's justice. It rightly calls forth God's wrath. But our sin also summons and draws from God compassion. We get the word here, long-suffering, slow to anger. Uh, our sin demands God's judgment, but he is immense in his patience. You are here today 
And you're, you know you're not in a right relationship with God. There's never been a time in your life that you have repented, that you have put your trust in Jesus. God has been patient with you every day of your life. See, the Bible teaches that the wages of our sin is death. We deserve sort of, we read some of those stories in the Bible where God strikes somebody dead instantly. We're sort of horrified. Those are reminders of what our sin deserves all the time. The first sin we commit demands God's immediate justice, yet God says, in my patience, I'm going to hold back the justice that you deserve. I'm going to give you an opportunity to turn. I'm going to give you a chance to to come to me. He's long-suffering. And then we get here this word, and of great mercy. This is that, that, that word we've talked about a number of times, that sometimes we translate it loving kindness or grace or loyal love or steadfastness. It's the fact that God has love for us that has nothing to do with us. It's not based on me deserving anything. It's based on God being a a God who is generous and overflowing in his kindness to us. We're talking about grace that is greater than all our sin. You you, you maybe are here today being like, you don't know what kind of sin I've committed today, and I feel kind of wrong even being here in church. Welcome to the club. We are here as sinners who are forgiven by grace, and there is no sin that can be committed that God cannot forgive. It's grace that's deeper than our need. It is grace that is higher than our comprehension. It's grace that overrides our rebellion. It's grace that is not deterred by our sin. And it is grace that will endure for eternity. If you have not come to Jesus, oh, come to him today to have that grace, that forgiveness, that relationship. Verse 9, the Lord is good to all. Now, those who enjoy verse 8 are those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. But there's a sense in which that even those who have rejected God experience the goodness of God. Matthew 5 says the rain falls on the the righteous and on the unrighteous. You don't have to be a Christian or even acknowledge God to benefit from his generosity. The fact that you're breathing means you're enjoying it. Talking about universal goodness, a God who has a heart for all people. But you know, the ultimate expression of this universal goodness is this, that God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, his one and only, that whosoever, that everyone who believes should not perish but have everlasting life. That is God's heart for you and for me. That is God's heart for your neighbor. That is God's heart for every person on this planet. That anyone who believes can have everlasting life. Praise God for his goodness. Do you praise God for for his goodness? Praise God for his greatness, yes, all the things that he has done, but his his goodness that we don't deserve. Uh, Your sense of how awesome this is will be determined by how much you realize that you don't deserve it. You think, well, of course God should be good to me. I'm a a great chap. Uh, Or if you recognize, wow, no, I, I don't, but look at how kind he is. third place to praise God. Now, we come back to thinking about God's greatness. The psalm goes back and forth between God's greatness and his benevolence, then back to his greatness, and then it'll end again on his grace. It sort of goes this A, B, A, B kind of pattern. We come here now to talk about God's kingdom or what we'll call his glory. Verse 11, they shall speak of the power of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endure throughout all generations. Notice the words, 
kingdom showing up four different times here. The word power, the word dominion. Come about the fact that God's king, we're coming back to, I'm going to extol you, my king, in verse 1. Now he's coming back to say, God's authority, God's rule in the universe. Let's celebrate that. Here's something that's pretty sweet. Uh, I told you guys at the outset, verse, that every verse begins with a different Hebrew letter. You take verses 11, 12, and 13, inverted, it spells the word king. So even just in the where he's putting these in the verse, he's putting the word king right there in the acrostic pattern. This is all about the king. And so here's David, who's the king, saying, I'm not the ultimate king. I'm not the eternal king. Even though God promised to David, hey, you're going to have a kid one day, you're going to have a son one day through your line, whose reign will never, ever end. He's thinking about the one who would one day come from him, and that is Jesus Christ, the one who is descended from David, the one who even now sits on the throne of heaven and rules and reigns over everything. Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the perfect king. And one day Jesus will come back to this earth in power and glory, and he will crush the final enemy, death. Praise God for that. We we face death all the time, and it is... It it feels, in some sense, you're like, well, this is natural, everybody dies. But in another sense, it feels so unnatural that you're like, this life ends, and it feels like life should keep going, and it doesn't. One day, Jesus will destroy death. Praise him for that. One day, he's going to expel all evil from this world. You turn on the news, and it can almost just be, ah, there's another shooting and crime and corruption and wars. He's going to one day come back and do away with all of it. He's going to rule, and he's going to reign. He's going to do it forever. And even now, he's the king. For those who turn to him in repentance and faith, you you, you come into his kingdom. He becomes the king of your life. And even more broadly, he rules over everything. He, He made the world, so he rules the world. It's his house. It's his rules. And you know, human kingdoms, they have borders. But God's kingdom does not. He rules over all people, places, and time periods. And he demands the love and loyalty of all people everywhere. His kingdom, according to this text, will never end. Human kingdoms eventually collapse. The, the, the line of the King, uh, King David ended with one of his great-great-great-great-grandsons, Zechariah, in 586 B.C., and there's been no Davidic king since then ruling in Israel. Eventually, the, the Egyptian empire disappeared, and the Babylonian empire disappeared, and the Assyrian empire disappeared, and the Persian empire disappeared, and the Roman empire disappeared. And great people in history like Napoleon, they came along and collapsed. And by the way, one day the United States of America will probably be a footnote in some history book somewhere. But the kingdom of God endures forever. That's our hope, beloved. Maybe the best way to to recognize this fact is this. Acknowledge him as king in your life. Kings make laws. Kings say this is what's going to happen. And loyal subjects... Dutifully obey. You know, it does us very, very little good to talk about him as king, to talk about him as lord. Same idea. And not do what he says. We're to honor him in our words, honor him in our thoughts, honor him in our actions, honor him in our priorities, honor him in our marriages, honor him in our, in our, in our workplace, honor him in every area of our lives. He's king. Now, the main point of this in verses 11, 12, and 13 is we as his people should talk about this. Notice verse 12, so as to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts. There's sort of a missionary focus to this. Say, 
God's people talk about the fact that he's the king and Jesus is the one who reigns forever, so that people who don't yet know him as king will come to know him as king. This calls us to missions. There, uh, around this world, there are still people groups that don't know the name of Jesus. The people who live on your street who don't know Jesus. People you work with who are going to spend somewhere forever who need to know about Jesus as the king. So who are you telling? Who are you telling about him? Okay, that's why we're going down to the Christmas tree lighting on, on Friday night. Is so we can just make further inroads in our community and we can get the gospel into people's hands and maybe have some conversations along the way. But just a small little way that we can, can say he's king. He's what this is all about. There's so many things that we can do that are not hard to do. Get to know your neighbors. Offer to pray with and for people. Give out tracts. Invite people to church. Pray for God to give you opportunities to talk about him and his rule. We come now into the final part of the psalm, and we, we are now called to praise God for his grace, which I get we've talked about this, you know, with the Lord is gracious. These themes sort of keep cycling back around. But just notice, just hear how extensive God's grace, his kindness, his favor is. The Lord upholdeth all that fall down and raiseth up those that be bowed down. God offers help to the fallen for those who are weak and weary and worn. He sustains, he supports. Especially those who know that they're bearing a great weight of sin. Lean on him. Verses 15 Continues, the eyes of all wait upon thee, and thou givest them their meat in due season. Thou openest thine hand and satisfiest the desire of every living thing. In other words, every meal that every creature in all the universe, every meal they eat comes as a gift from God. He's the one who makes the grass to grow so that the cows can go eat the grass so you and I can eat the cows. Uh, Everything we have comes from him. That's why it's good, a good practice before you eat to stop and say, God, thanks for this meal. Uh, I know we kind of do that out of routine. It's such an easy thing to do without even thinking about it, where you pray to thank God for your food, and your mind is thinking about something else, and you just kind of... But really to stop and think, to be like, this meal I'm about to have in front of me, whether it is sort of a, a bowl of ramen that you cooked in your dorm room, or it is a filet mignon that you're having at Ruth Chris's Steakhouse... All of it comes from God, and to say, God, thank you for this. Give us this day our daily bread, and look at it. You've done it once again. That's grace. Jesus says there's no sparrow who falls anywhere without their father's knowledge. He knows the very numbers of the hairs of our head. We come along in verse 17. See God's grace once again. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. Notice how the word all, by the way, is getting repeated again and again and again. To say God is completely and totally consistent. God's not sort of one way one day and a different way the next. He is always faithful. He is always good. Now, if we were to do a poll, poll this room to say, how many of you today believe that God is righteous in everything that he does and, and everything he does is right? We would probably all answer yes. Until... God's ways bring us into a place of hardship and suffering. All right, that's kind of where the rubber meets the road. People will readily acknowledge God's justice and his goodness and the rightness of everything they do until, until the hardship comes along. And then they're like, nah, 
I don't know if God, did God make a mistake here? Or is God sort of sitting on his hands and, and this is happening apart from him? Or is God really good and righteous in all of his ways? God's righteousness, if you, again, look at verse 17. The God, is, God is righteous or just and holy in all of his works. The word rendered holy is the idea also of his love. God's perfectly righteous, perfectly loving. And you know where we see that most fully displayed? It is at the cross. Where God and his love for sinners like you and me exacts justice on his son, Jesus. God doesn't just save us by being like, oh, well, we're going to kind of ignore your sin. We'll just kind of make it a write-off this time. God forgives us, forgives our sin by putting our sin onto Jesus and Jesus taking the punishment and God's justice being perfectly satisfied. In verses 18 and 19, we see God brings deliverance for all who call. The Lord is nigh unto them that call upon him. To all that call upon him, notice these words, in truth. Okay, that's in sincerity and in faith. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He will also hear their cry. He will save them. Paul puts it this way. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, those words in truth here in this text, it means more than just, well, say some words, whether or not you're, you're, you're actually, you know, it's to say our heart is truly engaged in this. It's to say that we, from a place of believing in him, we call out to him. But all who call out to him will be saved. Everyone who believes in him will not perish, but of everlasting life. Anyone who comes to him will be received. And when you do, you have God near. God is near those who call. You're a Christian here today. You have a God who is close. You do not walk through any hardship alone. You don't, you're not walking through anything. You're like, you might feel like everyone's abandoned you, but there is a God who is walking right by your side who is within earshot at all times. And then verse 20, the Lord preserves them that love him, but the wicked will he destroy. God protects, he guards. Now, we think, well, that means everything's going to go well in my life. God will protect me from, you know, from losing my job or from getting sick. And, but listen, those things do happen in the lives of those who, who love Jesus. The idea of this word, uh, preserve or protect, is God watches over He's guarding. Nothing will come into our lives other than what he allows. We are kept by the power of God, 1 Peter says. There's nothing that you can do if you're a Christian to lose your salvation or your standing with God. It's based on him and his kindness. Now, who does that belong to? Look back again, verse 18, 19, 20. God is near those who call onto him. Verse 19, he saves those who fear him, preserves those who love him. That is a beautiful description of what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who calls out to God in faith. A Christian is someone who reverences and respects God. A Christian is one who loves God. The, the, the ultimate mark of being a genuine Christian is not, well, I go to church every Sunday. The, the ultimate mark is, do you love God? You put your faith in Jesus, and is that faith demonstrated by, I really love him, even if I don't perfectly obey him, even though I might trip over and fall on my face sometimes. I really do love God. I really do want to please him. If that's the cry of your heart, like take courage, beloved. That, is a, that can only be there by the working of the Spirit of God. 
But there's a warning. The wicked will he destroy. The wicked will he destroy. Preserved in, he, preserved in, the, in the Hebrew is the word shemar. And the word destroy is the word shemad. One letter difference. In fact, one stroke of the pen difference between being protected and saved and eternally doomed. One letter difference. Difference of one letter, but a difference of all eternity. I mean, really sobering stuff here. Are you one who has that saving relationship with God through Jesus? Are you born again? Or are you in the, the other group, the, the wicked, those who will face God's wrath, those who, when they die, will spend eternity in hell? There's no middle ground. You're either uh, among those who are saved or those who are lost. You're either among those who are forgiven or those who are still in their sins. But praise God for the good news of Jesus, that you can come from, from the, 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 the shamad, the, 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 the under God's wrath group, into the shamar, into those who are protected under his mercy group through the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, if you have, praise God for that. Praise God for his grace, grace that has saved you, that has delivered you from an eternity without God. Praise God for his kingdom and for his rule, that he is orchestrating everything for our salvation in the end. Praise God for his goodness, that he showers on us every single day. Praise God for his greatness. So verse 21 ends, My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord. And let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. There's this escalation that happens. It starts out with just David by himself. And then about halfway through the psalm, he's sort of like, hey, let one generation speak to the other, and all those who are faithful praise God. And then it ends with, let all creation join in praising God. There's this, this great choir, this great choir that you can be a part of. No, not sitting up here in a choir loft. I'm talking about the choir of those who are redeemed. And here's the beauty about this choir. You don't have to be a good singer, right? You don't have to be a certain age. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is or your socioeconomic background. It doesn't matter what political party you vote for. Entrance into this great choir is dependent on one thing, receiving God's grace. That's it. And for all eternity, the praise that begins now will echo. Ten trillion years from now, we will still be praising this God. We praise God every day in anticipation of that great day. And we gather here in this small group of people in, in anticipation of the day when we gather with all of God's people around the throne to say, worthy is the lamb that was slain. I want to encourage you to praise God after the model that we have laid out here in Psalm 145. I honestly think perhaps the greatest problem in the evangelical church today is we have a low view of God. We just don't know how glorious and great our God is. You can remedy that by digging into the Bible and seeing how great he is and then getting that truth into your heart by praising him for it. So I want to encourage you this week, get into the presence of God. Come to him in prayer. And why not take Psalm 145 as your template? You're like, well, I always run out of things to say when I try to thank God. Here's some ideas. Praise him because he is the eternal king, as we have seen today. He's unsearchable in his greatness. He's a God who does great and mighty works in redemption and creation. He's full of goodness for all people. 
He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's a God who sustains the weak and feeds the hungry. He's a God who is near when we call out to him. He's a God who saves all those who trust in him. He's a God who destroys all those who reject him. He is a God who is holy. Any one of those things you could take and meditate on. You could take all of those things and praise him for it. But will you praise God? This is what we were made for. This is what we were created for. Will you with David say, I will extol? Even though tomorrow's Monday, I get it. I've got to go back to work, and there's a big pile of paperwork and all of these things. But I'm going to praise God because even when my life is changing doing this, God does not change. Will you praise him? Would you bow with me as we conclude today with a word of praise?